Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Hey, welcome back. We have an incredible interview on deck for you today. Well, my name's Batman, but you can call me Bob. When I see the boy wonder, I just say, yo, Rob, I used to, you know, wear Kate and do the leotard bit. Now I'm wearing this fancy jacket because I don't give a... Shut your mouth. I used to bust my butt all day fighting crime. Now I'm rocking Austin, Texas. When I sing my rhymes, I can turn in a crowd too crazy, old mom, because I'm Batman. You can call me Bob. Let's do this. And that, my friends, is our guest today, Bob Schneider. He is known nationally in Austin. He is a legend. You know, he's really well recognized, in particular for his prolific and wonderful songwriting. And for those of you that have been had the pleasure of seeing him in person, his ability to create a vibe. He can create such a, a feeling of strong emotions and synergy in his audience. It's really impactful. It's why we tapped him to talk on our program, because we want to talk about neuroscience and mood and emotions and how all of this interacts with music. And we do cover all of this. Uh, and, however... In addition, Bob really open up, opens up and shares his own experiences of therapy, his recovery, and even his experience of uh, years of group therapy and how it's impacted him and his music. And it's just so interesting. It actually gives us a window into what it sounds like when someone does their deep work looking at their life and their struggles and making sense of it all. And so it gives us a chance to really hear from the other side of the couch. You know, you hear us talk about creating a coherent narrative and things like that. And yet Bob has a way of talking about it in just layman terms. And it's much more in fact impactful to hear about it all from a cool Austin dude rock star than it sometimes is from our psychobabble perspective. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. And stick around to the very end. You'll little, hear a little bonus section where you get to hear one of Bob's songs. And Sue, it's really fun. She she hears it and puts a bit of a attachment spin on it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Now we're going to pick up the interview with Sue asking Bob about emotions and songwriting. You, baby. you ready? I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Right, you, you know, I'm interested in how you use emotion to write and as a performer. Are you conscious of it or not? Are you turning it up or down? Like, can you just sort of walk us through how it goes, you know, as you create? Uh, well, that's really kind of what I use. You know, that's my compass, really, uh, when I'm writing or doing anything, art or performing, really. When I sit down, I don't have, like, some set agenda about what I'm going to write. I don't, like, sit down and go, oh, I heard about this story in the paper or I just uh, stubbed my toe or I just saw this pretty flower or whatever it is. I don't ever sit down and go, I'm going to write a song about something. What I do with the music or the art or poetry or whatever I'm doing um, is I just sit down and I just start writing or playing music or whatever. And then while I'm doing that, I'll start writing something down or I'm playing something. And then whenever I write something that, that sort of pings something inside me emotionally, then I'm like, Oh, there it is. That's the thing. And, uh, and it, it doesn't matter what it, it could be something funny or it could be something sad or it could be something 
true or if it just makes me feel anything and I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track. It's like a hot, cold game where you're trying to figure out where the goods are and uh, you're just walking around blindly in your mind or whatever or, you know, in your brain and then it's like hot or it's like cold, cold, hot, hotter, hotter. And then, then you figure out what the thing is that you're making. And, it, and it's all emotional. So that's really what I'm going for when I write or when I you know, make art or whatever it is. If it's making me feel something, then, then that's where I need to go to. So, yeah, it's all yeah. emotional, intuitive, sort of intuitive process. Well, I think that's probably some of what makes your music so compelling and so easy to connect to is that how I would translate that into sort of this this therapy speaker, this neuroscience speaker, is that you go bottom up instead of top down, bottom being the right brain, (laughs) the right brain, intuitive, just you're not thinking about it, you're feeling about it, right? You're, you're following your gut. Yeah. It doesn't start with, so the left brain, so again, some of our listeners are aware of this like left brain, right brain thing and uh, top bottom processing. But so on the, so instead of thinking your way through it, or like you said, starting with a narrative, one of the things that they say is that there's something about the unexpected and that that's one of the things that's very compelling or that I know you'd know the feeling that you get when you just are flooded with that sense of excitement, you know, when the concert's going right or the song is going right it's always when it's something i haven't experienced before so if i'm on stage and i'm playing and uh i'm playing the song a little differently or i'm saying something that i just thought of in in the moment on stage that's really the magic then then i'm like doing something for the first time it's always when you're doing it for the first time you have this sort of emotional electricity either on stage or in the studio or whatever. It's easy to write a song. I can sit here and write a song or draw a picture all day long that I've already done before or something I've done similarly, but it's not going to get me excited. If I'm doing something I've never done before, it comes out of the blue if I say something or if I think of something I've never thought of, then all of a sudden that's very exciting. I just was writing a song yesterday, and I started writing something about a snake in the grass growing on an airplane. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I was like, how can you grow grass on an airplane? And then right after that, it was like at the bottom of the ocean. And I was like, oh, yeah, the plane crashed. And there's grass like seagrass growing on it or, you know, coral or whatever. And it was just so it was like, I'd never I don't know where that came from. I didn't sit down to write that, but it just came out of nowhere. And uh, it was just this beautiful image that now I have in the song. And again, I don't, I've never, I have thought of the ocean. <clears throat> I've thought of plants, right. thought of grass, never, and I've thought of snakes. I've used all that stuff, never used them together, never in that way. And it was exciting. It sounds almost like a dream, like how dreams happen. You know, that you, it's putting together all these different, different elements in a new way. Sure, Absolutely. Okay, it feels a little bit like a dream image. And then, you know, as a therapist, I think, oh, I wonder, then does that, does that ever help you sort of process things that you're going through? Or do you ever interpret it about what's in your mind? Or Oh, yeah, I, I think for sure, it helps me deal with all kinds of things. I mean, I've, I've gone to therapy for off and on for 20 years. I've been, you know, I started going to therapy 20 years ago individual therapy, uh, group therapy. I've done a lot of recovery work. I'm sober now 22 years. 
So over the course of all that time, I've had a lot of insight into who I am. And uh, one of the things that I realized about my songwriting is just intuitively I was figuring out stuff in the songwriting, even though I didn't know what a lot of it meant until I started, you know, getting the language handed to me by the therapists and uh, they were explaining, oh, this is this and this is this. And I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote about it. I wrote about that in this song like five years ago (laughs) when I was, you know, still drinking and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I work out stuff intuitively or subconsciously and I don't know Mm -hmm. what it means sometimes. And then later on I go, oh, that's what that means. I really truly try not to think too much conscious I try Mm. not to like when I'm writing or when I'm making art the worst part of it is the editing part that comes at the end and that's the part where I'm like using my critical brain to try to figure out what what are the parts of the thing that I just did that are less desirable and then that's me thinking that's me I guess the uh, left part of my brain that's the worst part of it. The best part is that that right brain part where the all of it all of the good stuff comes from. And that comes at the beginning and then it's at the end when I figure out, okay, well, yeah. this is I like this better than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then sometimes if I don't get all of the information from the right part of my brain when I'm writing, then I'll have to like, oh, right, well, let me fill in the gaps with with the left part of my brain. And that's always where I end up with these Frankenstein songs that I don't particularly like. Because, mm-hmm. again, I'm kind of coming from a conscious part of my brain. And I really, I don't know a lot about the brain or how it works, but I do feel mm-hmm. like most of the information is in my subconscious. And I can't mm-hmm. necessarily access all of it. And a very small part of it is in my consciousness. And so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I'm taking in a buttload, I think that's the technical term for it, buttload of information. Uh, it, it is. It is. Uh, it's in the DSM-4. The <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> but I'm only able to access consciously a very minute amount of that. But but when I'm writing songs, I think I'm, I'm like almost like a, a whale uh, eating plankton. I'm, I'm taking all of it and squeezing out these song turds <laughs> that's my that's my analogy that i just came up with from my subconscious by the way <laughs> i've never thought of that before so there you go that that's no, my subconscious totally... in action <laughs> well totally and i i was right there with you i understood exactly what you meant probably in a in a way better way than if you were trying to tell me just some straight narrative so <laughs> And, you know, the surprise that you talked about when you do something different, I think that's the same thing that as a listener, that it's when, you know, we, our brains are anticipation machines. And so we're expecting, you know, a certain rhythm is going to go this way. Some of what the science says, it's, it's actually when it changes. So it's just the same thing you're saying. It's when it defies your expectation that you get that little jolt. And the little jolt is oxytocin and serotonin. So, and oxytocin, of course, is the love drug. So it's when you have a baby, when you're, um, you know, making love, when you are with a beloved pet or your kids, you know, that that really just the gold, <laughs> you know, that if, if we could put it in the water, you know, maybe the world would be a different place. I don't know. But what's amazing about this is the... I really get what you're saying that you... It sounds like you kind of actively cultivate getting your 
conscious mind out of the way to make room for what, you know, the, the bubbles, the carbonation that come from underneath. That's the deal. And I think that's where like drugs come in, like heroin or alcohol. I think a lot of people use those drugs, heroin, especially because I think heroin really more than any other drug gets rid of the critical part of your brain. And, um, and then you are just using the intuitive part of your brain at that point. And uh, not not that I have any experience with that, actually. I, I was never a big hard drug guy. So, but that's oh. the way I understand it. And, but, and I will say this, for 22 years now, I haven't, you know, used drugs or alcohol or anything. So, mm. and, I, and I feel like I've written all of my best material since I got sober. And so I know that you can train the critical part of your brain to back off while you're writing. And the best way that I've found to do that is by doing uh, these morning pages uh, that I learned about in the book, The Artist's Way. And so I, I did that for about a year where I would write every day. I would write three pages nonstop to start and, and not stop writing for three pages. And it doesn't matter what you write. You don't use any of it for anything. And it can be just like writing the same word over and over again, or you just whatever just comes into your mind, you just write down. And what it does is it tells, it tells that critical part of your brain or I guess the left side of your brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, left, the right side of your brain. I, I don't know. I call it the critical right. yeah, and the creative yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's exactly right. It tells the critical part of your brain, during this process, you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to ignore you because right now I'm writing down whatever I think of and I'm not going to judge it to be good or bad I'm just going to write it down and it really it's like training a dog and uh, once you do it enough then you can sit down and you can just start writing and that critical part just like a dog will just sit there and it won't beg for your attention and you can really get down and write and and that's what those drugs do as well they they keep that at bay and so a lot of people use those because they don't understand that there's a different way to get that part of your brain to kind of behave. And, um, and, and also I think those drugs also have diminishing returns because eventually uh, that part of your brain or, or that dog, if you want to use that analogy, uh, gets used I love to those the drugs and then, and then, uh, and eventually will will kind of turn on you and then they don't work anymore. So. I mean, some of what you're describing is um, kind of a mindfulness exercise and you're, and being able to intentionally put your mind where you want it to go Versus, you know, being the moth to the flame where that whatever little stimulus, you know, you're thinking about this or thinking about that or, or uh, judging yourself. So uh, sort of practicing. I love the analogy of you, you know, sit and stay. And I'm going to do this right now. And then and then that translates and you're able to do that better, more through the day and stuff. But man, that's, it's tough to do that. There's a critical mind about the creative process, but then there's just the critical mind, right? I will say this. It's not tough to do. It's actually, it's easy to do. It's not like exercise or something where there's a lot of physical discomfort. It mm-hmm. really is uh, just a matter of doing it. But the hard part is just getting yourself to do it. Once you, once you do it, it's, it takes about 10 minutes. And um, it's, mm-hmm. not a, it's not a hard thing. You just do it and then you're done with mm-hmm. it. But it's the doing it that's get the starting it. Getting yourself to sit down and... Right. And there, you know, for me, it was, there was a need for me to, to want, there was, I wanted to do it because I I, I wanted to get better at what I was doing. So 
But I think uh, I think that works in every aspect of your life. I think we 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 use creativity, no matter what you do. I mean, I I write songs and and make art and write poetry and stuff, and so people go, oh, he's so creative. But people are creative in every vocation, and using that intuitive part of your brain will help you in any vocation that you do, and it'll make you better at it. So it's something I think everybody could benefit from. I really do take good and bad out of the equation when I uh, am doing anything creative. Again, I I have to save that judgment call, the good and bad part, for the end of it. So when I sit down to write a song, I'm just like, I'm going to write a song right now. I'm not Mm going to worry about whether it's going to be good or bad. It'll Mm -hmm. be what it is. I'm just going to, you know, have fun. I'm going to let the creative kid part of me have free reign for a little bit. And I'm just going to let it do whatever it wants to do. I'm going to let it, you know, spill paint all over the walls and uh, pee on the floor or do whatever it needs to do. And I'm just going to get out of the way of that for a little bit. So I'm not trying to write a good, if I, because if I sit down and try to write a good song, it, nothing stops me. Right. I'm like, you know, you just, it's like telling that part of your brain, like, hey, you're spilling paint. And then they're like, what? Oh, no, I, what am I doing? And then it, oh, yeah. it, it shuts that part down. I will say this. I have this thing called the, the song game that I do with some friends of mine. And uh, we're also songwriters. And what I do is I send out a prompt every week. And then their homework is to write a song using the prompt, as is mine. And I do it, so I, it forces me to write a song every week, and I've been doing it for, God, I've been doing it for 15 years at least. So, it, you know, it's forced me to write, uh, you know, that's like 800 songs that I've written uh, this way. What it does is uh, it's allowed me to write about, you know, like I've written 800 songs at least that way. And, uh, and so one, one time the prompt was the N-word. We're like, all right, that's the prompt that good luck and right. so all of us all of us were like if we're going to use this word in the song we have to make this song like it's got to be the song that ends racism like it's got to be this profound use of the word we can't just throw it in there and so right. all of us tried to write these great songs and all of the it was impossible it's impossible to write the great song because you are just mm-hmm. immediately hobbled creatively mm. And so we all ended up writing these super racist songs because we couldn't write the uh, we couldn't write the song that we wanted to write. So we, we at, you know, we all were at wit's end, and then we were just like, oh, I guess we'll just get racist. And then, then, you know, then we were all wrote horrible songs that uh, that we could never use. But um, it, it made me realize more than anything, like trying to write something profound will will stop you from writing something. Well, screw you up. No, I totally... It takes you out of the flow entirely. Well, again, uh, well, again, you, you just have to let that creative part of you do what it wants to do. And it'll just do what it wants. And every once in a while, it'll do something beautiful and, uh, and incredible. In fact, I would say every time it does something beautiful and incredible. That's right. That's right. But, uh, but uh, you know, it might not be what you like. It's weird that I'm saying it's something different than me, but it is something different than me. It is, um, 
It's, it's something that you have allowed to emerge. It, well, it's a very mysterious thing. It really is. And some people like liken it to channeling stuff. And some people think of it as like, uh, you know, like Stephen King talks about uh, where he gets his stories from. Is they show up like packages as, at his door, like wrapped, and, and he unwraps them. And, and he doesn't know where they come from. But I believe that it just comes from all the information that we've sucked in every day of our lives. And then it just, then there's uh, uh, this magical part of our subconsciousness. They can put all that stuff together if you allow it to do that. Well, if you allow it, and you know, Stephen King in particular, I know does, you know, he's very disciplined about his, it's similar to the morning pages, you know, he writes a certain number of pages per day, no matter what, and if it takes him an hour, if it takes him 12 or whatever. And, and that makes me like, in other words, it's, I think it's, I would say you underestimate when I said earlier it was hard and you said, no, it's easy. I actually think our gifts are the things that are easy to us, but hard to other people. And so I think that this is you being able to set this aside and get into this flow and appreciate the things that come out really is a relatively unique skill set and experience to be able to maintain. And I think I feel pretty solid in that assessment because you're a prolific writer. You know, you're out on the bell curve when it comes to being able to produce this. So I really there is some magic that you have both in, I think, a balance of, you know, you have the discipline to, to make the space to do it. And then also you have this access to this, mm, like the whale, you know, all the plankton. <laughs> well, th- well, I mean, believe me, I like being thought of, I like to think of myself as special, don't get me wrong. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think that whatever we tell ourselves is, is what our reality is. So if I tell myself that it's easy, then it's easy. If I tell myself it's hard, it's hard. If I tell myself I can't do something, I'm not going to do it. If I tell myself I can do something, then that's what I'm going to do. And I think that applies to every part of our lives. I, I do know that the reason that I continue to write as much and create as much has got a lot to do with my self-esteem and this idea that I'm worthless. Like, I don't have any self-love. It's just a thing I'm, I've become aware of. And uh, it, it makes me realize, oh, this is why I do what I do. I make this stuff so that I can feel like I'm going to not die. So the mm-hmm. idea that I have is if I don't write music, if I don't make art, then I'm going to be left. And I have a clear idea of it in my head. I'm a little baby in like a, a little swaddled baby. And mm-hmm. if I don't create this stuff, I'm going to be left in a gutter, like on this, right by a curb, right by a gutter in the rain. I'm going to be left in that place and I'm going to die of hunger and neglect. And- I'm going to be left there neglected to die. But if oh, I wow. write songs or if I make art, then I won't be left in that gutter. I'll be loved mm-hmm. somehow. And, uh, and I mean, I'm very aware of that. And, uh, and, and, and I think I used to believe that with therapy and with, you know, all this stuff, I would be able to fix that part of my brain and I would somehow feel some kind of self-love. But I don't think that's the case. I think, and I think therapy is extremely important so that you can understand who you are and why you do what you do. And 
like, because I went to therapy all these years, I realized, oh, that's what's going on with me. It's not like that's what's going on with me and now I can change it. No, that's just who I am. That's who I'll always mm-hmm. be. And, and, mm-hmm. and then I can make a choice and I can say, okay, well, you can sit with that fear and not make anything and see how that feels. Or you can make something and, and, and use that to kind of dissociate from your feelings, which is what I do. And, but I mm-hmm. like that. I like dissociating. I like working. I like focusing on things. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of who I am. I think it's part of the way I'm programmed as a human male. And I make that distinction because I think females and males are, are, have different programming. I mean, I think at one point in our evolution, we were similar. And I think at some point we've become specialized. Like I think women are specialized and then men are specialized. And then I think different groups of women and men, like I think there are kind of normal people. And then I think there are people that are very sensitive, much more so than kind of normal people. And I think those people uh, tend to become like artists or alcoholics or junkies or people that kill themselves because, and I think there, there was a definite job for the, for people that were super sensitive back hundreds of thousands of years ago, they were sort of the, uh, sort of the alarm clock or the alarms, the, the security system for the group, because while the group yeah. was sleeping and getting their rest, these guys were hypervigilant and listening for bears or marauders or mm-hmm. anything, or they could like, look at this, look at the clouds and figure out, Oh, there's going, there are storms coming. And then normal people would look at it and go, it just looks like it's still going to be another day of, uh, you know, wet. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no, the way those clouds look, you know, they're like taking in a lot of information because of the way we're, we're programmed. We, we have different jobs for sure. And, and again, mm-hmm. this is, this is just something I think is true. It's not like I'm studying this or anything, but I've, I've, but I've heard it and it, and it makes sense to me. I'm like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that, that mm-hmm. rings true to me. I don't think being sensitive is a choice. I don't think, uh, you know, your sexuality mm-hmm, no, is a choice. You're just, uh, you're just born who you are. I mean, I have two kids. They're both born. They were both born with a, a person. They were both born who they are. Now, mm-hmm. how they behave and how they hold their fork and what language they use and uh, how they treat other people and, and uh, you know, manners and, and culture, you know, that's all taught. But their personality, who they are, their sexuality, their, their sensitivity, all that stuff is genetic, 100%. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no doubt mm-hmm. about that. Right, that as parents, we're here to sort of sponsor them and help them emerge versus uh, shape them or, you know. I'm really struck by your story of your association to the baby by the gutter. And it's, so for our listeners, you've had some really good therapy or else you're just really good at using it, I don't know. But that is what we would call a coherent narrative. And that, you know, when you've had crappy stuff happen to you, which most of us have in our lives, um, it's not what's happened to us. It's the, it's the sense we make of it and it's what we do with it. And so you just described a perfect resolution of when we have these implicit experiences, like, you know, obviously that literally isn't going to happen, but that's how it feels. And that image helps you understand this morass of feelings and you can live with that. One of the questions I have, though, is if you could change it, I know you were saying that you thought it would change, but if you could change it and be able to hold love and be able to you know, have that holding, would you? Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> yes, of course. 
course I would. I try. I want. I've tried desperately to do that for years. And I will say this about the therapy: I've had good. I've had wonderful therapy, and I've had mediocre therapy. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think therapists. It's a lot. What we do is just is just like everything else in life. I would say ninety percent of people that do what they do are mediocre at what they do. They they just do. Uh, the bare minimum and kind of suck. And then there are people that for whatever reason, probably the same reason I do what I do. Yeah, exactly. They, they've got, they've got the beast that they've got the beast at the back. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They, they, they're narcissists and they have to excel at what they do and, and we get the benefits of it. And so I've had those therapists and, and the work that I've done with them got me to where I could see the little baby in the thing and, and, yes, and got me to do the thing where I've, where I've taken, where I've gone into my home of origin and taken me away from my alcoholic parents and, 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 and gone down the street while they're screaming at my back, trying to get their baby back. And I'm like, no, I'm taking care of this person now. Oh I'm the God, parent. That's... You're not the parent. And then I'm like crying and they're crying and, yeah, that's, you know, and, you know, but I, it took trying a lot of different therapists to get to that point. So if you're listening to this and you've tried therapy, and you're like, ah, oh, it didn't work. No, you just had the wrong therapist. Go try, a different yeah. therapist. try a bunch <laughs> of different therapists and you'll find somebody out there who, who, who will really help you figure out who you are. Cause really, I think at the end of the day, it's not, I mean, I wish it was about being able to change but it's really, I think, more about a therapist, a great therapist can help you figure out who you are. And then once you understand who you are, then you can make decisions based on that information. Uh, or at least you can at least, you know, not be so lost or not feel so hopeless. Like, I mean, at this point, I'm 51 and I just know who I am. I, I know I'm not yeah. good at certain things and I'm a perfectionist and I want to be great at everything. So I'll be okay. But uh, I can't be, I can, I can be pretty good at certain things and, and not that great at certain things and still be okay. And not right. lie about it, not lie about it to myself and not lie about it to other people and not try to pretend to be something that I'm not either. You know, I, I tell my wife all the time, I'm like, look, I know you want me to, to be this certain type of person, but I'll never be. I'll always be this person, but I'll, I, I love you, and I, I, I'm going to do my best to, to figure out a solution, you know, an arrangement to this. But, uh, you know, you kind of get what you are. You, you, you get who you are. And I, I will say this about relationships, too. I mean, there's lots of things about my wife that just drive me nuts, but those things that drive me nuts about her are the reason that we're married. Like, It's all the the negative stuff, even more than the positive stuff, that create all the passion, create this experience that I have with her that I call love, because it mirrors the kind of craziness that I experienced when I was learning what love was in my house, you know, Mm -hmm. in my home Mm -hmm. of origin. So relationships, you know, if if you're lucky enough to be born into a household where everything's hunky-dory, then that's maybe what you're going to be looking for and you're, you're way ahead of the game. But if you weren't, you're probably going to have a hard time. Uh, like mm-hmm. me, I'm just, I'm attracted to a certain type of craziness and chaos that if I don't 
see that in the person, then I don't feel a lot of passion for him. So it's been interesting. Relationships uh, have been interesting well, to me. Yeah. And you feel very integ- like resolved, like you're at a resolved place. And there's a lot of people that if I ask that question to, would you change it? Like it really is a toss up because you have come to this place of peace and acceptance of who you are. And to change it would sort of undo that, undo your, the scars and the, and so, you know, I, in some ways it sounds like, yes, you, of course you would change it, but in other ways, it's like, you've come to incorporate it. It's now part of you that young, the kid that you got out is now part of you. And that it's, I don't know, there's what you're demonstrating, I I would say to our listeners, it's a really good example of being on the other side of having the coherent narrative of having the self, like realistic self-acceptance and, and acceptance of others. I mean, that's, you know, I'm really not, I promise you, I'm not, I'm not somebody to just blow smoke. I really am accurately describing what I'm hearing. <laughs> and um, it's great to have this recorded. And Yeah, I mean, I, I really do, I do believe that about the change thing. I mean, I think we are what we are. Like, uh, yep. you know, I think, I think some people come from uh, backgrounds where it's almost like they lost a leg. And uh, you're not going to get that leg back. You're right. You, but you can you can at some point through therapy realize, oh, I'm missing a leg here. So now what mm-hmm. do I do? Oh, you get a prosthetic leg. Oh, you can do that? Yeah. You just get a prosthetic leg and then you can walk around. You're not gonna be falling over all the time. And I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. how do I do that? Oh well you you go keep going to therapy or you go, you know, you get help for whatever your addictions are, whatever it is, uh, you can mm-hmm. figure out what you are, but you're not ever going to grow that leg back. You know, it's like, it is right. like a scar. You can't right. get rid of the scar, but you can be right. aware of it and you can go, Hey, I got this scar. That's part of who I am. And, uh, mm-hmm. you, you don't have to hide it or you don't have to, you know, cause a lot of people are ashamed of it or whatever. So it's like, no, mm-hmm. this is who I am. This is, what I am. It's, you, I, it couldn't be said more perfectly. It, I love it. And it's, uh, it's super inspiring. We talked about maybe splicing a little bit of your music in. Is there any particular song, like based on our conversation, does anything come to mind that you would want me to put in? <laughs> I mean, I've got a lot of songs. This is the, no, but I mean, no, this is a pretty, esoteric. it's a bottom, right. It's a bottom up question, right? Like what's the first, what was your first thought? Well, there's a couple. There's a couple songs. There's one called "The Effect," which is about just using your mind to escape from things. There's uh, "The World Exploded into Love." I feel like that was a that was a song I wrote after I'd gotten sober and I, I had uh, cobbled together some sort of a spiritual system or whatever that I could live with that uh, made sense to me. I mean, there's a lot. There's a song called Changing Your Mind that I wrote while I was getting a divorce that was about, you know, learning to uh, accept the fact that I, you know, that people are going to do what they're going to do. And uh, I, yeah, I can't can't do anything about that, really. I mean, you can. You can do a lot of, you can do a lot of stuff about it. Uh, yeah, you can spend a lot of time resisting. <laughs> Well, you can do you can do a lot of. It is a weird thing because you can uh, you can you can influence people 
in, in very real ways. And there are strategies to do that. But it doesn't, even if you get them to do what you want them to do, you're still, it's still A, it's still their decision to do it. You've just influenced them. You're not in control over them. And the energy that you've expended is not worth the reward because even if you get that person to do what you want them to do, it doesn't ultimately help your happiness. It doesn't help. Mm -hmm. It it, it costs more. You're paying more than you're getting for your return. So it's a bad investment trying to get people to do what you want them to do. Your time and energy is better served just working on your relationship with yourself and your relationship with the world and how you can accept the world or love the world better. You're going to get more from that effort than you will getting somebody to do something that you want that you think will make you happy. (laughs) It's very wise. I totally agree. My version of that, as I say, you know, to stay on your own postage stamp, you know, like you have this little square under your feet and just when we lean over, we get over our skis, we go to, you know, we start getting into other people you know, manipulating and seducing and trying to get the thing to happen versus if we're pretty safe, if we're just like, I feel this, I want this, I need this. That's pretty solid ground right there. That's the postage stamp underneath, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, I will say this. So getting back to therapy. So I did individual therapy for years and years and I found it, I found it, the results were, fair to midland to great, just depending on the therapist. I would say mm-hmm. most of it was fair. Some of it was not good. And then the, and then one, one guy in particular was incredible. So that was great. But the group therapy, I, 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 went, to, uh, I went to this place called Onsite. That group therapy situation was incredible because what I can do with the therapist is I can figure out who I'm going to be with the therapist. And I really try to be honest when I'm, when I'm in therapy, cause I'm such a cheapskate. So I'm like, if I'm going to yeah. spend money, <laughs> I'm yeah, going to be as clock. honest as possible. <laughs> I'm not going to try to hide anything. But yeah. what I wasn't realizing that I was doing was I was figuring out who I was going to be. I was figuring out who the therapist was. And I was doing all this again, intuitional subconscious yep equations or whatever. And once I figured out who I was and who the therapist was, that's who I was. And, and so I can only get so far, but in a group situation, I had to figure out who everybody in the group was, who who I was going to be. And it gets, it gets too complicated. Like you can't do that math. So it kind of breaks you down after, at a certain point. And I, I found that group therapy was the most helpful for me in terms of figuring out a, I'm not a monster be that really the only thing I need to worry about is what am I feeling? Not what everybody else is feeling or what they're thinking, but just really dig down and go, what am I feeling right now? And whatever that feeling is, is fine. And just because I'm, I'm angry or upset about something doesn't mean I'm some kind of monster. It just means there's a reason for it. What's the reason? What, you know, what am I, first, what am I feeling? Because that was crazy hard at first. It was like a, 
trying to figure out what colors were. Like I didn't have mm. names. Like I had like one feeling angry, you know? And uh, so I had to figure out what, what I was feeling. And then why was I feeling it? Oh, I'm feeling mm-hmm. that because you're doing this. Oh, and mm-hmm. so I can go, Hey, I'm feeling this. And when mm-hmm. I, when I start from that place, when I'm dealing with people, when I start with my feelings, then, and I know I'm not a monster, then I'm okay. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, it's a much better place relationship wise to start with people from, mm-hmm. from that. And, but I only got that through group therapy. I didn't, I, I really couldn't get there with individual therapy. Well, I could not agree more. I do four groups a week, and it's my favorite thing to do. I actually just did a whole podcast for selling the couch, just evangelizing for group. People say that it's individuals, you know, it's going from the lap to the playground. And that's when you really, uh, you know, as an individual therapist, I get the heart of the watermelon, I get the best of you, and we're both there for you, which isn't realistic. That's not how the way the world works. And it's, you don't have any side mirrors to see what's happening. But you get in a group, and man, <laughs> it's, it's like learning Spanish through immersion, you know, it's, you just are learning it, you're just, it's a nutrient bath, and you're just soaking up all these things you didn't even know you needed as even watching people interact, you're learning and doing it live in the room. You know, you're, you're growing these muscles that we didn't get necessarily. So that is, yeah, it's, it's I 100% agreement with you. It's so hard. Yeah. It is, a t- it it's, is, it is. Oh, if, if so, you know it, what, this is what it is. I, I knew yeah. that you had had some really good therapy, and it was. It's, I bet you you were totally right. I couldn't put my finger on it earlier because I was like, God, who was this guy? You know, or whatever that you saw that like got you this. But I, what I always say, one is, if somebody who's come through drug addiction and they're out on the other side, I will trust them a little more because you know they've seen it and come out of it, which is awesome. But also, if somebody's been in group and you've been able to stay a while and and do your work in group, it's like those two things. It's just there's just this rawness and honesty that you can trust makes, you know what I mean? That you, the bullshit has kind of been then scraped off. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, that I found about group therapy, which was probably the most, uh, or just one of the things that I found very interesting was that I grew, I was able to grow up emotionally, uh, in group therapy. So I had this thing where, I mean, I was in my 30s and even in my 40s, and I just felt like a teenager. And I was making teenage decisions with my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's because when you grow up in a, I grew up in an alcoholic household, you realize at an early age that at certain times you are on your own. You don't consciously know this. You don't. It's not like you're like some kind of Einstein or Freud or something where you, you just figure it out. And then, you know, right. I have it's to be by an now. I have to be an mm-hmm. adult. And also I figured out that emotions are dangerous and they're to be put into the cupboard and not taken out or not examined. Those are dangerous things because you don't, anything can happen. So what ends up happening is for me, what ended up happening was I sort of got stunned emotionally. Uh, I wasn't able to like have my feelings as a child and, um, and grow through them and, and, and 
learn what they were and, and how they work. And, and so as I entered adulthood, I was still acting like a little kid sometimes, like a little kid, like a four or five-year-old doing that kind of shit. But most of the time, I was just acting like a teenager. And teenagers make bad decisions. I was making bad decisions all, all over the place. And what I found out in group therapy was I could go into group therapy and then the people in the group, I would project my parents or my relationships onto these people in group. And then I could work out emotionally stuff that I'd never worked out as a child in group. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember the second, I mean, I went for seven years and the second year of group I spent, it was once a week. I, I'd say every therapy session I went in there and I cried for at least half of the session. And I don't like to Mm. cry in front of people. It makes me Mm -hmm. very uncomfortable. And uh, I would just leave those. uh, I I never left group without feeling like shaky and vulnerable. Like I'm like, ah, I just really exposed a part of myself that, that, that I felt very, uh, not, not unsafe, but a shaky, like, uh, like mm-hmm. I'm like an open one, like I'd tear, torn off my scabs and, and, but not that either. It was more like, um, uh, like I'd taken off a piece of my armor and now I was walking outside without my armor and I was exposed. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yes. what it felt like. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. but what ended up happening was I, as I went through therapy and as I, like I did all that crying for that year, that's the crying I should have been able to do when I was a child that I wasn't allowed to do my my parents Mm -hmm. because my parents that was uh you know that was annoying that that upset them or whatever it was Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to do Mm -hmm. it so then I was allowed to do it so I was able to grow up emotionally and then and then I had all these interactions with the people in group where where normally if I had an interaction with somebody and things got tense I didn't like any sort of uh confrontations or whatever I would have these confrontations with people in the group and they'd be like I don't like you and in normal life if that ever happened, I'd be like, peace out. I'll never see you again. But in group therapy, right. I had to go back week after week with these people that didn't <laughs> like me. And guess what? I didn't die. I wasn't left yeah. in the, I mean, I felt the feeling was I'm in the gutter and I'm going to die. But week after week, I didn't die. And then after a while, I was like, oh, people cannot like me and I can still not die. And mm. so then I kept growing through that emotionally. And and at a, at a certain point, I was just like starting to just grow up emotionally. And now, most of the time, I feel my age, which is so different than ten years ago, when I was forty, and I felt like I was eighteen. So mm-hmm. that really is maybe the greatest benefit of group therapy was I was able to grow up. I didn't have to make these decisions based on this super like really immature emotional age that I was acting like most well of the time. if that's the greatest benefit that's I mean wow you know t- you certainly got your money's worth right and your time investment worth like what could what more could we want than to let our bodies catch up with where we are and uh and this and give yourself these loving experiences um, and difficult experiences and gritty experiences and get through it. And that's that earlier I'd said integration. That's what integration is, is all the ages inside of you can kind of come together and 
relate and work with one another and, and so that your mature self can be in charge. You don't have the four, a four-year-old driving the bus, you know? Yeah. So that is fantastic. Don't get me, don't I still, get me started on that. Uh, <laughs> well, I would I would actually really love to keep talking, but I'm aware of your time and you've been so generous and I'm really touched by what you've shared and I Oh I, good. Well, it was fun it was fun talking with you. I'm glad we got to do it. Oh, absolutely. And everybody, uh if you are in Austin, Texas, Bob does a it's a standing gig, right? Uh for 15 years now or longer at the Saxon Pub. I've been doing a standing residency at the Saxon Pub for over 17 years, every Monday night, 30 to 10. Every, every Monday night, 8.30 to 10. And let me tell you, he sells out huge, huge venues and arenas, and he's like a real rock star. And to be able to get in there with just, it's like cheers, you know? It's the best gig in town. So Austin is the live music city, and this is the gig of that city. So that's what I would say about the Saxon Pub. And I'm going to put that in my notes to remind everybody. And of course, I'll put your, you want to go ahead and say your contact information that you would want people to check out your music? Uh, if you just go to bobschneider.com, uh, there's okay. pretty much everything you need there. Okay, awesome. And you'll get to see your artwork. And uh, is that right? That's your art on there? Yeah, there is some of my yeah. art on there. And uh, yeah, or you can see that. Oh, I, I have an Instagram too, Bob underscore Schneider underscore music and it's all art there's no music there oh, I should cool. probably I should probably change the name to Bob no no Schneider no art, but uh <laughs> I just keep it music I like oh, to give the people awesome. what I like to give the people what I what I want to give them so one other quick question because uh Big Blue Sea um what, just can you say a couple words about Big Blue Sea or let, let the light in because I was thinking of, of rotating those songs in, in the podcast. Yeah, I'll talk about both of those. Um, Big Blue Sea I wrote after I had gotten to a fight with my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time, and she's my ex-wife now. But uh, we were dating at the time, and we got into a big fight. And, uh, and the next morning I wrote that song. And, uh, I mean, it just came out yeah. the way it came out. And the other song, Let the Light In, I was dating a girl who, I, I don't think I was dating her at the time. I'd met a girl who I was wanted to date, and she was telling me that she had been in a breakup and that she had uh, not dated anybody for like a year uh, since the breakup, and she, had, she was still kind of upset about it. And I was like, wow, that's a long time to, to uh, be upset about something that happened. Like from, It just seemed like a long time ago to me. And uh, so I ended up writing that song because of that conversation that I had, uh, again, I, I didn't like go, I'm going to write a song about this conversation. No, I, I, you know, I just wrote, I wrote the song the next day and then it just came out the way it did. And I was like, Oh, right. I guess this is about that conversation that we had uh, about her having a hard time getting over that breakup. Totally. I think that's part of why when, as you drop into talking about the song, you're talking about the context that it came from because that's sort of how the song emerged for you. Right. Well, see, that's the thing about my songwriting that I, I only realized this years ago, because uh, I would always tell people, like, all my songs were made up. So even the songs that sound very honest, they're not based, like, the stuff that happens in the song 
didn't necessarily happen to me in life. I mean, sometimes some of it sort of did, but lots of times I'm just making it up. I'm just making it up. Now, the thing that does, uh, the the thing that does show up in the songs is how I'm feeling. So if I'm in a breakup and I'm heartbroken, I might write a song that has nothing to do with a breakup, but that feeling will be imbued in the song somehow. And I realized, mm-hmm. oh yeah, at every point in my life, I, and like, for instance, when I was going through divorce, I was, it was really difficult. That was the hardest time in my life that I can remember. It was really a difficult, traumatic situation. Mm-hmm. And I was writing all these love songs, but it's because I had a two-year-old son at the time, and I was I was kind of like learning who he was and getting to know him, and my heart was expanding with this love for him in a way that I was that was very unexpected. And so I was writing these love songs, and I was like, "Why am I writing love songs? I'm going through this divorce. This sucks." And I realized, oh, because I have these feelings for my son. And and that's when it kind of clicked. I was like, oh, let me look back through my songs. Oh, yeah, this one song where I was real angry. That's this <laughs> real angry song I wrote. And, oh, I was really happy here. That's why even the song, the song is about murdering somebody, but it's, uh, it's real happy. It has a real happy vibe to it. Oh, it's because I was real happy then. <laughs> You know, it has nothing to do with the with the with what the the actual stuff is that's happening. You know, uh, the, lots of times. In fact, my favorite thing is when a song is real sad or something, and then all of a sudden you're laughing, or you're laughing, and then all of a sudden you're like almost crying because it's about love or something. Like I love mm. twisting a song yeah, I, uh, emotionally, so it's not just one thing. Because it's never just one thing. Life's not, life's not one thing. Life's everything. And you don't know what you're going to get. And um, I want my music to be that way. I want it to be like you don't know what you're going to get. when you, when you you. And it makes it hard to, to maybe market it or it makes it hard to, you know, it's, you can't just say, oh, yeah, you want to listen to some really sad music, go listen to Bob Schneider. You want to listen to some party music, go listen to Bob Schneider. You want to listen to some rock. Some really it's, twisted it's stuff. <laughs> it, well, it's, it's again, it's, it's kind of all over the place. And, and again, I don't yeah. have that sort of agenda to, to write a certain type of thing. It just is. What it's right. Now it's, I can guarantee you for those listening, you'll be surprised like, and twisted stuff. I mean, is you don't know what's going to come at you. Right. <laughs> like uh, I've seen you in the scabs too, a long time ago. Yeah. It's eyebrow raising. <laughs> and that's part of, I think that's the draw is it's surprising. It's there's, there's always a something around the corner that you're not quite expecting, and it just keeps it so fresh and so fun. I bet it is hard to market, but, but once you're there live, it's, that's, that's an easy sell, you know. I'm so appreciative of this and your time, and I imagine uh, I'll come cheer you on at the Saxon Pub sometime soon. And if there's uh, anything else you want to, like tour dates, or is there anything else you wanted to say or let people know to find you? Not really. Uh, I have a Patreon. Um, I, I have a Patreon account now um, where uh, people can become patrons uh, of what I do. And, and what you'll get uh, if you do that is uh, I, I release eight songs every month that I've recorded. 
Uh, and these are usually songs that probably won't be on, on studio records. And sometimes they will be on studio records, but it's, it's the songs that I've just written or favorite songs that I've written uh, over the years. And, and the reason I do it is because I have over, I probably have over 1500 songs that I've recorded and only wow, maybe a couple, a- maybe, maybe a couple of hundred of them have actually been released. And so there's all these songs that, that, that nobody's ever heard or nobody's ever heard the recordings of them. So uh, if you're interested in, in getting some of these songs and, and it's a deal where you decide what you want to contribute every month. And then once you contribute, once you decide what the amount is, then you just become part of it and then you'll just get, You'll get an email once a month and you can uh, download the songs. And I've got a podcast that I do called the, the Bob Schneider <laughs> Song Club. <laughs> so you can, you can find that on your uh, podcast app. If you just search Bob Schneider, that will show up. And uh, that's kind of what I do, like on the website where I talk about the songs from the album. I, I talk about the songs that month that are coming out. And again, I, you know, we'll just talk about whatever as well. Oh, how that is awesome. I didn't even know that was there. And Patreon is such a cool thing because, yeah, you it makes it accessible to everybody. Yet at the same time, you know, it's it, it's for you. It, it You know, it takes care of you. It's this fair kind of a fair trade both directions. It's really an awesome program. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of like PBS. It's, it's for the people who really love what I do and want to support me. And because at this point, uh, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a really difficult thing uh, to find the revenue to record the songs in a fashion that I think they deserve. Like I like going into a studio and recording songs with incredibly talented musicians. Uh, that costs uh, quite a bit of money to go into a studio and hire these guys to do it. So I'm using, I use the money that I make on Patreon to pay for the studio costs. And, it, and, and the, where I'm at right now with my Patreon uh, account, it takes me about 18 months of Patreon to pay for one studio album. So at this point, I can pretty much make a studio album once every year and a half. I'd love to make one every six months, but we'll see. Maybe as it grows, uh, we'll be able to do that. There's a nonprofit here in Austin called Black Fret, and blackfret.org, they have a black ball coming up. I would love to send you a ticket if you were ever, if you're interested in going and supporting Bob. But I also want to just get it to mention it for folks so that they can check out blackfret.org as a way of changing the music industry a little bit here in Austin, Texas, and really trying to support our local artists. All right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And everybody check out Bob Schneider. It's been really, really fun. It has been. Thanks so much. So with Bob's permission, we're very excited to bring you a particular song that I'm going to just kind of set the stage and uh, put it in an attachment perspective. And so that just be sure and listen to the lyrics. But first, be sure and check out Bob's Patreon account that he mentioned at patreon.com backslash Bob Schneider. You'll find this hot link in our show notes, as well as just his homepage, bobschneider.com. It's a blast to even just check him out. Okay, now for the song, it's called Let the Light In, and it is actually a song about the Wicked Witch and the Tin Man and the Lion. So that's really fun, uh, obviously based on The Wizard of Oz, one of my very, very, very favorite. And then here's the lens. Uh, I began to imagine the Wicked Witch being when we get in a state of dysregulation where we go up and we go to the ceiling and we are scary and <laughs> can uh, be intimidating to other people and very pointy 
we're very pointy when we go on the red side when we kind of get preoccupied or anxious. And then on the other side of the spectrum, the blue side, is the ten man. And what's up with the ten man? He's a good man, but he has he's missing his heart. And fortunately for him, he's on the way to therapy because he is looking to regain his heart. He's aware that he's lost it and wants it back. So you'll hear the chorus is all about letting the light in and letting your hair down and basically moving towards the middle, towards green, towards love. So yeah, just listen carefully to the lyrics. I think you'll really enjoy it. And we also get to show off this music. Well, the lion and the tin man sort of at the spot and the wicked witch walked in It's always done before The people in the club Said they don't make a pretty pair The tin man and the witch They didn't seem to care, no Thanks for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners out there. We also appreciate the reviews that we get and any input. We really uh, listen to everything that we hear. We read every review and incorporate uh, your feedback. We want to do a little shout out to Allie Bix from the United Kingdom. She gives us a great review in the very end, calls us fantastically informative with a very nice and relaxed style. Thank you, Allie Bix. So keep the comments coming. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about, a little less of. And uh, again, just bring us your feedback. You can find us at www.therapistuncensored.com. All right, thanks. We'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.